I'll give you a uh, brief introduction before and I'm today I'm joined by uh, Professor Frederick Karp, um, Professor of Metabolic Medicine at the University of Oxford. Um, thank you for your time today, Frederick. Welcome to the podcast. Um, uh, please could you start by just introducing yourself, your research and sort of what led you to this field of medicine? So I work in Oxford and I have a dual position where I have one academic position and also clinical position. Okay. Uh, so in my clinical position, I work with lipids and lipid disorders for patients okay. uh, within NHS. And my academic part is probably 80% of my time. And I lead the Oxford Center of Diabetes, Endocrinology and Metabolism. And my particular research interest for the past 20 years, I would say, has been uh, a variety of aspects around metabolic function in obesity. Okay, okay. And when we talk about metabolic function in obesity, it, it, the connotations are immediately bad thing. And the adipose tissue function in the body, it is something that is seemingly we don't want. But are there, are there, is there, are there benefits to having adipose tissue, fatty tissue stored? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are evolutionary programmed to uh, have adipose tissue. It's a vital organ in the human body. Right. Uh, and it's there to store fat for times when we don't have so much energy. Right. Uh, so, of course, much more uh, important for cavemen than when there is 24-7 society of today. I see. And is, are, there, are we more prone to storing fat tissue in certain regions of the body than others? Um, yeah, there's a very clear sexual dichotomy. Okay. where women tend to store uh, a lot of fat in the lower body, right. whereas men tend to store fat in the upper body. The upper body is often divided to the fat inside the body and outside the body. Right, uh, okay. Place, so, subcutaneous place, is that? And yeah, subcutaneous. I, and e e is it extra? Visceral fat. Visceral fat. Is okay. Continue, uh, these fat depots uh, have different relationships to metabolic function, and okay. that's why it becomes so important for the problems that comes when they become overfull. Okay, okay. And what is, I so it's quite a broad question, but what is more influential on metabolic health? Is it visceral fat, external fat, or subcutaneous fat? I don't think you can say either or. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, clearly, if you can store fat well in subcutaneous fat or in the lower body, that will protect you from a lot of problems. Okay. Whereas if you can't store fat well in those areas, then you are instead forced to store it in, for example, visceral fat. Right. Uh, and that can be bad. Okay, so the body stores, the mechanism of fat accumulation or fat storage in the body initially starts in subcutaneous fat, that, and then does it progress to visceral fat where it's, yeah, manifests it itself externally? It's like that, that, that if, if you look into uh, evolution or newborn babies and children growing up, they, they start off with essentially only subcutaneous fat. Mm -hmm. And then time in some people, you develop more and more visceral fat. Okay, okay. And with the relationship between fat and adipose tissue 
and insulin resistance. Um, we'll start with insulin resistance and, and type two diabetes. Is there a causal link between them? Because it is, or is, or is type two diabetes simply a case of chronically elevated glucose, blood glucose levels? Um, and you could have a very low percentage or even of visceral fat, but still suffer from type two diabetes. Or is there a direct correlation between? No, there's, there's very strong evidence that there's a causal link. Okay between uh, certain types of, of uh, adiposity and mm-hmm. acquiring type 2 diabetes, for example. Okay, okay. So even... Uh, that comes from a range of observations in patients with very unusual type of fat storage and defunct fat storage. Right. And, and with yeah. that, with that di- differential sort of pattern you see amongst, uh, amongst patients, how much of that is how much of your research is sort of centered around genetics and certain genomes predisposing people to be to, to putting on fat or accumulating fat more readily than others or even in certain areas than others is that yeah. something that you see yeah no that that's an important question there so genetics play a very important role here and uh, we have really learned that over the past decade mm-hmm. uh, when suddenly the technology has come to actually analyze the genome in a much more detailed way. Yeah. Uh, and we now understand that there are lots of variations in, in our genes and all these little variations actually give us the phenotype, the, the, the shapes we have and, okay. and the ability to store fat. But then there are a couple of patients, some rare patients actually, that uh, are more strongly affected by one particular gene we call that monogenic disorder. So one gene is causing extreme obesity or extreme fat distribution differences. Right, right. And are those genes related to, I, I, I'm aware of the two hormones, um, leptin and, and ghrelin with the sort of satiety hormones um, yeah. that in, in indicate hunger. Are, are those yeah. genes related to the secretion of those of those hormones or is it not to do with appetite as such it's just to do with proneness to put on to store fat when it comes to overall adiposity and and just putting on too much weight it looks as very many of the genes are actually uh, uh, that are involved are uh, involved in satiety and and the programming of of how we feel when we eat and when to stop eating so right. that's that's a, a strong input. Right. Uh, when it comes to leptin per se, mm-hmm. uh, that, that doesn't seem to be involved much at all, except for the very, very rare cases of human beings that completely lack leptin. And there are a couple of them described. And if you lack leptin, which is then giving you satiety, uh, you uh, put on massively. Right. Way. Right, simply you're you're never getting the society signals that you are permanently exactly. in a state of hunger. The, the wonderful part of that story that has been developed from Cambridge in the UK mm-hmm. is that there is a fantastic uh, treatment. Right. So you replace the missing hormone leptin. And when you do that, these children grow up normally and are no longer obese. Wow, that is that is fascinating. That, that, because... The nutritionists uh, come from a different background from yourself. Um, the, so the nutritionist that I spoke to said that in most obesity studies or programs designed to 
uh, at least reduce the prevalence of obesity in countries have largely been unsuccessful. I think Finland was an example where they managed to plateau the, uh, the, the prevalence of obesity, but they never managed to reduce the, yeah, the, 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 the figures. Um, so once people were obese or overweight, managed to sort of maintain that, but not in, yeah, increase the incidence. The example I gave you applies to a very, very, very small number of patients. I see. This particular disorder. If you give leptin to people who are generally overweight, this was done 15 years ago. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work at all. Okay. Wow, that is interesting. What that that seems counterintuitive. That seems very counterintuitive. So leptin therapy is if you were to receive a intravenous injection of leptin. Yeah. Wouldn't necessarily work if you were not suffering from a deficiency. If you suffer from deficiency, it works. If you produce your own leptin, it doesn't. Mm. And it's because leptin is produced from fat tissue. Mm. And the more fat tissue you have, the more leptin you produce. Right. Unfortunately, okay. all that leptin is not stopping you from eating. I see. I see. So, so then you have to invoke another mechanism. It's called leptin resistance. You're resistant to your own hormone. Wow. wow. Okay. So, yeah, you're opening a very uh, complicated sort of network of a series of events with, yeah, with that. Um, that sort of leads me to my next question with, with metabolism and, and eating really and, and, and um, satiety is that the more, is it true that the more foods we consume and I've heard arguments before, this is more in the field of nutrition regarding obesity prevalence is not necessarily the quantity of food that we eat but it's the types of food the ultra processed food that our body cannot metabolize in the same way it does for natural foods um is it true that your metabolism will adjust to your energy intake to the calorie intake that that you put in that your metabolism will speed up if you have a day where you eat more food and vice versa when you eat less food your metabolism will naturally slow so the metabolism will speed up after you eat that's mm -hmm. part the normal physiological process. If you overeat for a, a couple of days, uh, the metabolism will not speed up for that reason. Okay. However, if you overeat for a longer period of time and the body really starts to grow, and what grows then is also your muscle and your lean mass, then yeah. suddenly your energy expenditure will increase. Right. So this was a big paradox that came out 20, 25 years ago when you started to measure how much energy the human body uh, right. cons consumes. Uh, and it turns out that overweight people made use of more energy than lean people. Okay, interesting. And that, came out, that seemed as a complete paradox because yeah. how, how would you then uh, become overweight? But yeah. it's just what you suggested, that you adapt with increased body weight to higher energy expenditure. And therefore I would presume that means you obviously need a greater energy consumption. So it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, uh, that, uh, well, hypothesis that, that what happens is you, well, as you get larger and larger, your, yeah. your basal metabolic rate is that. So just the energy that your body needs yeah. just to so, so carry out human function. An overweight person will need to consume more energy to sustain his or her weight. I see, I see. And that therefore is that the sort of great challenge and once you become overweight or obese, the two 
two uh, fight against I, I, you are fighting I, always an uphill battle your body sure, and natural demand it's not just counting calories it's it's so much more into mm -hmm. this complex situation we talk about it's mm -hmm. all about habituation right How, what are you used to see on your plate when you sit down to eat uh, and you get used to these things and, and yeah. you have to break these habits yeah yeah i see i, I think you know, that that is a very important point i think that obesity and overweight problems is it's a multifaceted issue it's a societal cultural uh behavioral it, it, there are we all have and share different relationships with with food with yeah where with with exercise or and even it's interesting to touch upon that we all have a certain phenotype because before looking at those I remember learning before those sort of the three body types the ectomorph mesomorph and endomorph and there was a sort of a skepticism I initially had about that whether that was sort of naturally true but it but it seems to be the case that obviously that people are more predisposed to having more lean muscle mass or having more fatty tissue mass um, and in fact phenotypes and body types are very unique for individual to individual is that seems to be the case oh yes that's that's absolutely the case i mean i i, I don't think i think we have left those sort of ectomorphs and endomorphs behind us now and, and right. we see it's a more of a complex situation but yeah it's more nuanced than that uh the one thing i'd also like to touch upon was the quite widely publicized belly fat experiment um that you conducted um uh whilst we were at oxford and uh yeah. That was a group, I'll let you explain it, but briefly, it was uh, trying to look at how people could reduce their belly fat. Could you please talk us through what different study or methods uh, you tried for that? Yeah, so this is, this we did an experiment for this Trust Me, I'm a Doctor series. Mm -hmm. And uh, they approached us and, and asked us to design something they were interested in. Uh, and that the question was really, can is it possible to reduce belly fat specifically uh, right. belly fat being synonym synonymous with visceral fat and is it can you remove just the bad fat was the question and uh, uh, the they wanted a range of experiments to see what happened so they let us choose uh, a couple that we believed was going to work and they also wanted a couple of uh, nonsense experiments that people may find intriguing right so we randomized 40 people into four different groups so one group just got coaching with reducing calorie intake one group got coaching with physical exercise okay and no coaching with the diet okay one group uh were asked to consume a pint of milk every day. And this was an internet fad, is that right? There was a... Uh, was internet a... fad, yeah. Okay. okay. And, one, and one group was asked to uh, uh, do sit-ups. Okay. okay. And the sit-ups was really to uh, believe in this complete nonsense idea that you that you, th there is some proximity between the muscle that you exercise and the fat <laughs> that you want to remove. Yes, yes. Complete nonsense. Okay. Um, and the findings of which, uh, this word is quite intriguing. I read, I read the study and I was quite astonished at the, especially the milk finding. First of all, the group that lost the most weight were 
the the diet the coaching on the diet group was is that right they yes i mean they lost the most weight right and they also lost the most uh uh, belly fat so we did this this was quite serious study where we actually measured uh visceral fat uh accurately using a particular uh method called dexa scanning I have heard of that before. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is so that, is there bone used, density scanning as well, though? Used for bone density and body composition. And we okay. use body composition. Okay. And actually measure visceral fat content. And the weight loss with diet reduced the visceral fat most. Okay. Or it was the only intervention that actually reduced the visceral fat. Right. Uh, and there were some other benefits. We measured some. Uh, blood lipids and glucose and things like that in the blood and it was affected affected a little bit okay. i mean i think i was most intrigued by the exercise group yes could you talk a bit that about that they didn't lose visceral fat wow but their blood pressure went down their blood fats their triglycerides went down wow interesting so one should not underestimate the effect of physical exercise maintaining uh, body fatness i mean that's, that's very a, interesting a, a very important approach but you touched upon the milk yes findings. yes i'm so intrigued by that milk did really nothing but it did actually do one thing that was a surprise to me as well and it, uh, it we saw it because we had this dexa scanning the detailed way of looking at body composition and it turned out that they increased after the six weeks of drinking a pint of milk, they increase their lean body mass, which essentially means muscle mass. It's so it's really all really the really. high protein content in the milk. It's, you know, it's a little bit like a, a weightlifter's diet. You have yes. diet. And that's what we put these normal human beings on. And they responded. And there was no, but there was no reduction in, in visceral fats in the milk drinking group. But an increase in lean muscle mass. Yeah. That is very intriguing. That is very, very intriguing. And I think touching upon the exercise group as well, which is quite interesting, is that I think often is mooted in sort of popular science and mainstream media with people aiming to lose weight, that they're often told the sort of 80-20 distribution between diet being accounted for 80% of your sort of body composition and exercise 20%. And that, I suppose, could deter people or many people presume that exercise is a very tiny or almost unimportant facet of that but the interest of finding it on actually uh, sort of on the endocrinology level of the importance of the of the physical exercise is that yeah. it has more profound benefits in in your in blood profiling and yeah in um in triglycerides. and I, I think people often get uh disappointed with the what they see as a response to exercise, they mm. often do not lose any weight. Right. Uh, so I think it's important to have a mindset of what you want to achieve. Okay. If the mindset is, I'm going to feel better, my risk factor for diabetes and heart disease, all that is going to be better. Uh, I'm going to sleep better. All those things, uh, they will happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's Where always a you may not lose weight, but don't dis be disappointed by that. Yes, yes, I think you're right. It's a sort of a general picture of health, and I think I think obviously we are quite superficial beings, and we get quite caught up in the concept of body image or yeah. slimness, or and those mm. that sort of revered as opposed to yeah a, a more general spectrum mm. um, and a more general holistic approach to that. Um, 
Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I have only a couple more questions. Left. I'm conscious of your time and I'm really grateful for it. Um, I would just, I'd like to touch upon, to sort of finish with really, if you could talk about any sort of interesting research and what the future, we sort of touch upon genomics a little bit, is, is of your research at Oxford is, is happening at the moment in, in metabolic medicine and endocrinology. Could you talk a bit, please, about where you see the future of, of your research going? Yeah, I, I, I see two things that really interest me a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, all, it's actually very much about body composition and how we become what we are. Okay. And, and you need to have a, a generational uh, perspective to actually understand that because there are things that could potentially be programmed from very early on, how we develop as human beings. Right. And I'm interested also to couple that type of thinking that perhaps we are determined to be, become big and muscly or very slender or have belly fat or have large hips mm -hmm. already before we are born. Wow. And already in utero before we are born that determine these things or is it even before that it, does it come from the sperm and the egg from the mom and the dad that have these things in them and they are not necessarily genetic right uh, they could potentially be what we call epigenetic yeah and i want to couple those type that type of thinking with uh some of the big health crises we see uh, over the world. Uh, we think we uh, have a problem with diabetes because of obesity here yeah. in the UK, for example, or in Europe. Uh, that's nothing compared with what we see in India, China, Middle East, potentially Africa. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. They have. If you start to then to think, what were these sort of ex what were the exposures to these babies to these unborn children? Yes. Not yet born children. They were very different, of course. Yeah. And, and we need to sort of understand this, and perhaps we have a lot of of things to do there to get better health in adulthood, but looking after pregnant mothers, for example. Yes, I see. That's a very interesting because I think we often just led to believe that it is only down to maybe the food environment or the environmental factors when we are born around what affects obesity prevalence or obesity related. Long before that. Well, that's really fascinating. Does that sort of open the door and maybe to this slightly uh, unethical realm of, of gene editing, which is obviously in genomics and, and no, gene therapy? I don't, think, I, I don't think it's gene editing. Uh, that, that, that's, that's not the, the point about it. Uh, okay. and, uh, not at all. Yeah, it's not, uh, but not. I, I think we can change the uh, function of the genome. Yeah, uh, by early nutritional cues. Okay, that is certainly possible. There's good evidence, at least in, in rodents, from that. Uh, yeah. we need to find those solutions for humans as well. Okay, okay, yeah, that is that is very interesting. Well, I I will conscious of your time, and I think we'll wrap things up there, Frederick. And uh, well, hopefully, I can. Uh, pick your brains in a, in a few months now or even uh, look further down the line about what, where, where your research is going and uh, touch more upon that. Thank you so much for your time today, Frederick. I really appreciate it. Getting a lot of insight from that. Um, and I really, yeah, I really value it.